Super Talk Mississippi media production. Find your new ride at Kia McCombs all-new location at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Come find out why McComb loves Kia McComb at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Right on the corner, right on the price. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder and fine music on this uh, delightful June day there Rhino. Howdy howdy. How about the USM Golden Eagles? They'll be hosting a Super Regional. That is exciting. Back that to back awesome. years. How about that? Super Regional, and uh, they'll play the University of Tennessee. Yeah, the Vols fans are a little heated over it. They ain't happy, but I'm (laughs) sorry, guys. We're going to be playing at Pete Taylor Park in the Berg. That is awesome. Hosting uh, the Volunteers. That uh, gets kicked off this weekend, Saturday, 2 p.m. Central Time. Start times for Saturday's game and Sunday's, if necessary, third contest will be announced at a later date. Is that right? I think that's the schedule, the way I understand it. Yeah, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Yeah, okay. So guess what? Whoever wins, they're headed to Omaha. Woohoo! That's awesome. First to two. Yeah. I think Southern's got a good chance here to prevail. I really do. They're 45-18 and 18 on the season. They came through the loser's bracket to win the Auburn Regional, the regional out there on the plains in Alabama. Four do-or-die games, elimination games. That's awesome. Congratulations to them. And, of course, of course, Blah, blah. Of course, Coach Scott Berry, pardon me, golly, conflating the words there. Coach Scott Berry, an awesome coach he is. And, of course, his last year. He Hanging up be. the helmet after this year. I think it's the cleats in baseball. Well, he always wears that helmet, <laughs> He though. does wear a helmet. That's right. Well, I think there's a rule about that, isn't there? If you're in the coach's boxes in college, Probably. you've got to wear a helmet to avoid injury. I don't know that that really will do it because it doesn't cover your ear holes. But that's it. The markets, the Dow, has swung to the positive. It was negative. The investors don't know what to do. The old kangaroo is hopping, as you have said many times. Not sure what to think. The Fed gets together on the 15th of this month, and they're going to be thinking about whether or not 
to hike interest rates again. There's now a 75% chance that they will not. It is flipped. And that's based on some recent inflation data. Meanwhile, those Saudis, those zany Saudis, they want to cut production to boost the price of oil, but they didn't get a lot of takers. Well, they got to pay for the PGA somehow. <laughs> That's right. So you've seen the big news on this morning. The PGA, the LIV, and the DP Tours are entering an, into a new partnership. How about that? See where that goes. Kind of feels like the PGA comes away with egg on their face in that situation. I sort of agree. I would say that... Because they were hell-bent on doing everything in their power to punish any and everybody that signed with Liv. Feels like they're capitulating a bit there. Today, of course, 79 years ago, D-Day, the invasion of Normandy. Gosh, it's hard to believe a scant few of those brave heroes remain with us. If, they, if they're around, they're what, in their 90s? Approaching 100, maybe even over 100, those that are around. That's some brave souls there, man. I was reading, Rhino, through Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president at the time, his famous D-Day speech. And it was, um, of course, broadcast via radio. That was the way we communicated back in those days, or pre-TV. And, of course, there was no Internet. That wasn't even a twinkle in anybody's eyes at that point. But the radio address, it was really a prayer. June 6th, 1944. And reading through that, throughout the speech, the president at the time, FDR, no fan of FDR's policies necessarily, but he, of course, invoked and beseeched the will and the power of God, the Almighty. I mean, that's, that's really the essence of the speech. It's a prayer. And you just wonder if that would happen today. Could you do that? Or would you... Be the target of all the crazy people that would object to any sort of inclusion of religious words and themes and content in a presidential speech. Even even as uh, you beckon upon something that was going to end with loss of life, going to include loss of life, and put... American sons in harm's way, knowing you were going to lose a lot. They knew they were. It was impossible. But it was a calculated risk that they had to take. I might have shared this before, but have you ever heard the or read the note that Eisenhower wrote the night before D-Day and kept in his wallet just in case everything went wrong? I did. I pulled it up this morning. It's fascinating. It's incredible. It really is incredible. But if it's okay, I'll read the final paragraph in FDR's speech, prayer, which I think still 
is meaningful and should resonate with Americans today. With thy blessing, we shall prevail over the unholy forces of our enemy. Help us to conquer the apostles of greed and racial arrogancies. Obviously pointing that at the Nazis. So true. Lead us to the saving of our country and with our sister nations into a world unity that will spell a sure peace, a peace invulnerable to the shimmings of unworthy men, and a peace that will let all of men live in freedom, reaping the just rewards of their honest toil. Thy will be done, Almighty God. Amen. Well, first, I just don't see a present-day president, right, making those kinds of statements. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, it depends on what you're calling present-day. W invoked God a lot. He did. It's been a few years. I think things have changed somewhat since then. Oh, yeah. Now, consider this. This was a Democrat president. I mean, this is the creator of the New Deal. This was a guy who signed into law of Social Security, who really thought government should be more involved in American life. But think about that final statement, the final phrase, fragment of the statement, reaping the just rewards of their honest toil. When's the last time you saw a Democrat say anything like that? I guess you could say Joe Biden's refrain, it's time to reward work, not wealth, insinuating, as he always does, that anyone who achieved wealth didn't work. I just found that a bit striking. The paragraph right before that, the first sentence, and, O Lord, give us faith. Give us faith in Thee, faith in our sons, faith in each other. Faith in our united crusade. Faith capitalized. I just don't see that today, sadly. In fact, Indiana University of Purdue, (laughs) they're now asking students and the like to define and acknowledge Christian privilege. Now it's Christian privilege. Christian privilege is the idea that Christians receive inherent advantages in society due to the perception that Christianity is status quo, while other religions are not. As a result, other religions or attitudes about religion are marginalized, overlooked, or ignored altogether, or even perceived as troubling, problematic, or suspicious. Huh? What the heck are they talking about? Now you see why I roll my eyes at the very mention of privilege. Unbelievable. These people are whack jobs. The other word i got to tell you is long in the tooth I'm about sick of. Marginalized. What the heck is that? That's oh, poor pitiful me put into fancy word. (laughs) We're coming right back with Representative Lee Yancey. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. What? What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. 
Sunshine Band bumping us into this segment here on Middays. We're back with you. We're in the Element Well Studios. We welcome now Representative Lee Yancey. He serves, of course, in the Mississippi House of Representatives. He uh, represents District 74. That includes Rankin County. He's the chair of the House Drug Policy Committee. Representative Yancey, thanks for coming in today. Hi, Gerard. It's a pleasure to be here. Appreciate it. As always. Appreciate it. Absolutely. So, Today, we were just talking about is, uh, of course, D-Day, 79 years. And I don't know if you caught our conversation about FDR's famous prayer, as he knew he was sending American sons into harm's way, knew many of them would not survive it. And it's just, uh, I think it's a time to reflect on uh, the history of our country. And I get concerned and just... Kind of off the subject we had, we got you in here for, but I think being D-Day, it's appropriate. I get concerned that are we teaching this history in our schools? Is it does it seem like it's that's necessary? They should know about these epic battles, the loss of life, the sacrifice made, so that they can grow up in this country and go to school and and uh, live the best quality of life on the planet. I think certainly days like today, when we remember D-Day, we remember the sacrifices that so many made that day and and many days since then who gave their lives or uh, who risked their lives and were were injured or uh, fought for our country. reminds us how much we need a loving God to, to, to see us through, to help us through these challenging days. You know, in Mississippi, I had heard... Uh, I think Governor Reeves say several days ago that during his first 14 months in office, uh, there were over four. I think there were 14 na- uh, naturally declared d- disasters: disasters yeah. hurricanes, tornadoes, COVID-19, on and on and on and on. Floods and floods, and and it's times like those when when people are struggling and hurting. Those times really point us upward and we began to seek God more than we do when we're comfortable and in days like today days like d-day uh, when the, when the president was looking at sending all those young men into battle uh, it had to be an overwhelming burden I remember reading some of the biographies of Abraham Lincoln and and how he felt you know writing those letters to the to the parents of soldiers who were deceased and uh, thanking them for their service and their heroism and uh, just demonstrating that uncommon valor that is found among those who who fight for their country. No doubt. And it reminds us, again, how much we need a loving God uh, for, for peace on earth, a God who created us all. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a time to reflect. Yeah. And I certainly hope that Americans do reflect, especially on a day like today, which was uh, a difficult day, obviously, in our nation's history. Uh, before we get started, a couple of texts on the ceasefire text line quickly I want to get to. My late father, this is Bill in South Mississippi, my late father was involved in the Omaha Beach landing as a medic with the Army. 
He was on the second day landing, which is why I'm probably here. Otherwise, he was probably killed on the first day. Appreciate you sharing that, William. Incredible. Uh, and, and a lot of connections, a lot of stories. Darren and Jackson, 79 years ago, my grandfather Roy waded ashore. Second wave, dog sector, Omaha Beach. Thank uh, both of those individuals for their service and their sacrifice to our nation. So, all right, you guys are uh, you're on vacation. You're out of session right now. You're not <laughs> yeah, doing anything right. You're just living it up. <laughs> <laughs> so, the uh, you served, of course, as chair of the House Drug Policy Committee. I know you've shared that story before. The speaker knew that the medical cannabis program was going to be high profile legislation. And he came to you and asked you to serve as the chair, knowing that you would be uh, the right person to to lead that effort. He trusted you in that regard, that you would do the right thing. We got a program. It it, it did take a lot of the so-called sausage-making to get uh, the final legislation, the final measure, passed through both houses, signed into law by uh, the governor. That was in the 22 session. Here we are. We've launched the program. We've got the rollout underway. Give us a status update. Well, again, I reluctantly accepted this job uh, <laughs> as the speaker uh, offered to me as drug policy chairman. And, you know, it, it was as a result of my own cancer uh, diagnosis three years ago that I guess kind of softened my heart a little bit towards this issue. I, you know, like I said, it wasn't available. Cannabis wasn't available when I had cancer. But uh, there was a time when I was in danger of needing a feeding tube, going through chemo and radiation, and had lost a lot of weight. And one of the things that that cannabis does is is it helps a patient who needs to eat have an appetite, and would prevent them from having to get a feeding tube or something like that. And there are so many different different uses for it. And I just want to remind people that this is not about recreational drug use. Uh, for me, uh, this is not about recreational drug use for the state. I, I don't see me having any active role, passive role, any kind of role in pushing for recreational marijuana use. I did this for people with these debilitating conditions that are that are listed in the bill. Cancer, Parkinson's disease, Huntington's disease, muscular dystrophy, spastic quadriplegia, HIV, AIDS, hepatitis, ALS, on and on, but they are legitimate, devastating, debilitating illnesses. And what we have in our country right now is an opioid epidemic. You know, the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, on their website, they say that 82% of interdiction drug stops, seizures of drugs, are opioids. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's on the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics website. And, I mean, we're talking about oxycodone, oxycontin, hydrocodone, Vicodin, heroin, codeine, morphine, methadone, fentanyl. Fentanyl is a synthetic opioid that is many times more potent than than a regular opioid. And, and it's approved for treating severe pain, typically advanced cancer pain. But fentanyl is being mixed in with some of these pills uh, to give them more potency and to try to get people more addictive addicted to this substance, and, and many people, as you know, across the country have died, have lost their lives as a result of that. So so in response to the opioid crisis and in response to the wave going across the country and in response to the ballot initiative that happened in uh, at the end of 2020, 
uh, with medical cannabis being legalized, and then later the Supreme Court threw that out, as you know, we came up with the Mississippi Medical Cannabis Act. And we had a chance to form this this program in such a way that it was not in our Constitution, that it was properly regulated, that it was properly taxed, that it uh, didn't have its full potency. We put limits on the amount that you could get. We put limits on how strong it could be. And now we have had, uh, I guess, medicine in the dispensary since about January. And so um, things are going uh, more smoothly than they have been. Of course, we've ironed out a lot of wrinkles. The Department of Health, Department of Revenue are doing a a very wonderful job as far as regulation is concerned. And they have a big job in front of them, one that was – uh, unknown to them prior to this. And so uh, they have had to just create it from the ground up. And I want to commend Dr. Edney. I want to commend Chris Graham at the Department of Revenue with their regulation of the dispensaries uh, because they have a big job. And they have to go in and they have to make sure that everything that's being done uh, from the growing to the processing to the testing to the transporting to the disposal to the dispensary is all being done according to the Mississippi Medical Cannabis Act. And within the scope of that bill, uh, we created this program. Anything outside the scope of that bill is against the law. It's still federally Schedule One. If you are uh, sending your product across the state line, I can assure you, as soon as you're discovered, you're, go- you're going to jail. You know, if you're doing anything other than what's in that bill, uh, you're going to be in trouble and you're going to jail. But what we've seen in the last few months is the number of patients who are cardholders have increased. In April, we had 6,500. In May, we had 10,391. And then in June, we now have almost 13,900. So Mm -hmm. it's going from 65 to 10 to almost 14,000 patients. Mm -hmm. Uh, that is, that is growing. It's a good, uh, good climb because more physicians, practitioners are getting certified uh, to help people get cards. People are, are, are learning about it by word of mouth. More of the dispensaries are up and running. And so I think that we'll continue to see this. Generally, states that have a medical program generally have 2 to 3% of the population who would have a card. Hmm. And in Mississippi, that would be somewhere around 60,000 people. And so we're, we're right now at about 14,000. You know, it's climbing. We've got a lot of companies out there who have invested lots of money. Uh, to come here and and to uh, put this program in place, and uh, they are counting on that patient count increasing, and and it is. Mm, Interesting. We'll come right back after the break. we got Representative Lee Yancey in the Element Well Studios talking about Mississippi's medical cannabis program. Stay with us. Talk.fm. Morning, fans. It's time for... Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. We are 
back in the Element Well Studios with Representative Lee Yancey. Ben from Madison on the ceasefire text line wants to pass on. Always enjoy hearing from Chairman Yancey. His committee has been very active the oh, well. last few years. Because you guys got a lot of committees, and some of them may not get a bill in a session, right? Well, and others may do. be covered up. I'm just uh, I'm working on having a hearing in July right now on white bagging. It's a way prescription drugs might be delivered in a different way hmm. um, and I'm get, trying to get all sides of the of the issue represented and, and speaking on it to our committee uh, in case we bring that bill up again this year I didn't bring I, I filed the bill last year didn't bring it up but if someone uh, has a let's say they have cancer and they're getting they need IV drugs and it's something that they can't self-administer uh, normally you would purchase those drugs from the place where you get your treatment. Now, if if this bill were to pass, it would allow the purchase of that drug from a specialty pharmacy who would then mail the drug to the place where you're going to be treated. That's why it's called white bag, because the patient never touches it. If they were to give it to you personally and you take it, that would be called brown bagging. That's a different Hmm. thing altogether. Interesting. So there are lots of issues with that, chain of custody issues, uh, timeliness issues, uh, if you have leftover medicine, that you know, how is it stored and, and is it thrown away and is there a lot of waste when there's insurance costs involved or, mm-hmm. or Medicaid involved? So a lot of things that we need to find out uh, to see if it would be efficient to do it. Uh, but it would offer more competition in selling prescription drugs. And, yeah. and, and generally you would think that competition would bring down the prices and and uh, would would – Competition increases the quality, so uh, and provides more access. So, you know, that's why we have these hearings when we're out of session, so that we can try to bring in the experts uh, and their lobbyists who represent all the different groups that are for or against the bill, and all of them will have a chance to uh, present their case in ten or fifteen minutes, and and then our committee will, you know, digest that and 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 think about it and and decide whether or not we want to move forward if it's, yeah. if it's worth it. Hmm. So uh, that's that's what we're doing in that that hearing coming up in July. And you guys, like you said, that's a, a fairly common activity uh, between sessions. Right. You do have hearings to seek input from the public, from experts, and so forth. Those are scheduled. Uh, members of the legislature could come from the speaker, the lieutenant governor, or or just uh, uh, committee chair, for example, that may convene. And the idea is just to collect information to guide you in your lawmaking. That's right, because none of us are experts in, in, in most of these issues. And so we, we rely on the lobbyists and we rely on um, experts to come in and, and, and tell us about how each of these things works. Because yeah. I mean, you have committees ranging all the way from transportation all the way to finance, from education all the way to public health. Yeah. So everything in between. And so there's a lot to learn uh, when you're down there. And uh, the, the smartest thing you can do is recognize what you don't know and find some people to surround yourself with. Who, who know what's going on and can educate you on it. Yeah, absolutely. So now that the, the law is in place, the medical cannabis law, and it's being implemented, is there anything that's come to your attention that needs to be fixed from a legislative perspective? Are there some amendments you think may be coming up, in, like in the next session? 
I, w- I would guess that every year there will be tweaks made to this bill uh, to try and improve it. Uh, we listen to our regulators, and they apprise us as to of what's working and what's not working. It becomes more and more clear each day the more they practically try to put uh, this law into place that there are places that need to be smoothed out. And so we try to help them do that, and we did that this last session mm-hmm. as well. And gave the Department of Health more enforcement and seizure and confiscation powers. Gave them the same powers that the Department of Revenue already had with the ABC, the way they regulate the liquor stores, and now the dispensaries. Uh, Basically, the Department of Health needed to have that same type of law enforcement authority when they were when they would go in and inspect and, and see. You know, gross violations. They yeah. could actually act on it, and so you know, we we always try to uh, make it easier for the patient process to get a card. We know not every patient uh, has access to a computer, so what we did this past session mm-hmm. was to allow the practitioner to assist them in applying for the card, making it kind of a one-step thing. You okay. go see the practitioner, and you apply for the card at the same place. You know, and just just allowed that to happen and, and tried to tried to smooth that. We, we decreased the number of days that the Department of Health had to process the applications. Mm-hmm. They did have 30 days. We changed that to 10. Uh, so, uh, you know, and we gave them additional money that they requested in order to, you know, be able to beef up their workforce and able to do that. And so, um, you know, uh, we make changes as needed, and I fully expect there to be more changes next session. Somebody on ceasefire, it's Brian in Madison, pardon me, on the ceasefire tax line says, to get the benefits of medical marijuana, can it be eaten or does it have to be smoked? There's various forms of consumption. Absolutely. It can be, you can eat it, you can drink it, you can have it as a uh, tincture where you have drops placed under your tongue. There is a transdermal patch. Um, you know, there are creams like for arthritis, um, you know, on and on. Any way that medicine can be delivered, medical cannabis can be delivered. Right. So you have uh, sort of been forced into becoming an expert on well, all this. I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but I no more than ever thought I would. <laughs> well, that's necessary, though. To, yeah, that's to part, of, part of it, part yeah. of the process. Absolutely. If you're going to make a good law, then you better study like you're studying for your final exam yeah. and um, learn everything that you can about it. So Dr. Edney at the Department of Health, his, uh, his group, his agency is, uh, has primary responsibility for implementation. Uh, and and the oversight of the program has he come to you with any requests for any of these tweaks? He did this. this pa- he did this past session, and, the, and okay. we and we did pretty much uh, most of what he asked for, I believe. And, okay, and uh, and we'll do the same. You know, we we put a lot of trust in him and and the Department of Health to oversee this program. And uh, again, we want it to help those with debilitating conditions. We do not want to see. Uh, this product being sold on the black market. We don't want to see people who are just using it uh, to get high. Right. Um, you know, this is for sick people, and, and uh, we're going to regulate it as such. And we have restrictions on the amount that can be purchased in a given time period in a month, right? Sure, only three ounces a month. You know, originally when the ballot initiative passed, they passed five ounces a month. That's, right. You know, and then um, then different bills had it at four, and then three and a half, and we finally passed a bill with, with three ounces a month. Something else that comes up is uh, where dispensaries can be located. There's some restrictions on that. Yeah, they can't be located. They have to be 1,500 feet from another dispensary, mm-hmm. uh, so you can't have a lot of them all grouped together. And they have to be within 
uh, have to be at least a thousand feet from a church, school, or daycare, unless they get a waiver from the church, school, or daycare, and then they still can only be five hundred feet. Uh, so you know, we're trying to to, to have a, a small footprint in our state yeah. and to not have uh, marijuana facilities everywhere. Right. And I think most of us go through our daily lives uh, without seeing too many uh, at all. You know, there, you don't see advertisements. There's some restrictions uh, on that, too, There are right? restrictions on that. Um, you know, the the little yard signs that advertise about helping you get a card and find a dock, uh, that, those, those were not part of uh, our plan. And uh, I expect to not see those anymore very soon. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, this is uh, a very, very restricted program uh, that's regulated and uh, intended for those with those conditions. Municipalities, counties were able to opt out of some or all of the programs. Right? That's right. They were able to do that. And then there was a there was a way for there to be a referendum to to opt back in if the if the, if the jurisdiction decided to do that so we tried to address all the problems that we could think of and uh, there were many yeah um, and i know that not everyone's fully happy but we did come up with a bill that 90 percent of the legislature voted for i believe last count 38 states have a medical cannabis program i know you spent a lot of time researching and mm-hmm. reviewing those programs in the other states to find out what works and what doesn't that's right. We looked at them, and we created what we call the Frankenstein Bill, where we put a piece from here and a piece from there and, and uh, tried to come up with the best practices in each state, and and I think we came up with a pretty good bill. Yeah. You know, we did the same thing with the lottery. We uh, yeah. I, I used to say to folks that uh, we're, uh, there's kind of a good news, bad news deal. If you're a big fan of lotteries, well, we're the 45th state to implement it. If you're against it, the good thing is we got 44 others to to review to figure out what works the best and what a program similar situation here that's right we didn't blaze the trail so to speak right let the other states make the mistakes (laughs) absolutely (laughs) all right appreciate it representative lee yancey for coming in man it's been great to be here thanks gerard yep we're stepping aside for a break in the element well studios we're coming right back Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. Bumping us into this segment. The tune is Easy to Fall. 
It's from the Trial by Fire album. And I asked Rhino to play that. You may not have caught the chorus there. But says you, the chorus goes, you say you believe in love and still you run. You only believe in God when you come undone. I thought that kind of was fitting in our discussion about FDR's speech, really a prayer, in advance of the invasion of Normandy on this day 79 years ago. So true. What's the old saying? There are no atheists in foxholes, right? Maybe we should turn back to God. So I say back because we seem to have turned away to a great extent. 61% of the nation considers themselves Christian. But that's not to say that if you're not a Christian, you can't be a good person. There are a lot of other faiths and there are a lot of atheists that are good people, but uh, I've said time and time again on these airwaves how much appreciation and respect I have for the Sikh faith. Yeah, absolutely, very passive, and share the same ideals as Christians do. Just, just have a different philosophy. Different. I mean, how many faith? local Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian or whatever denomination churches do you know of that have a whole warehouse in their house of worship where they just keep things people need in case they need them. Absolutely. I think the point is that the principles, the ideals of Christianity and uh, the good book, the Bible, those are universal. And that is what we should turn to. Whether you happen to believe or not, you can't deny that those principles make the world a better place when they're practiced. That's the point. Which, not to try to put words into former President Trump's mouth, but I believe a lot of his supporters look at examples like FDR being unafraid to pray in public when we talk about make America great again. Yeah. A Democrat president was willing to pray before the entire country. That's true. It's a central theme in his speech. was, again, calling upon the Almighty for protection, for guidance, for strength, for victory, knowing that it was victory over evil that was sweeping the world. It's amazing how FDR, as we talked about when we were reading some excerpts of the speech, discussed the the racism of the enemy. Yet we have people in this country that say, it is this country that is awash in racism. It's amazing. These, of course, are people that run around with all the spoils of American capitalism and success. <laughs> it's incredible. They trashed the same country that made all that possible on this pretense of racism. Unbelievable. Really is upside down. Nearly 160,000 Allied troops landed in Normandy on June 6, 1944. 73,000 were from the United States, 83,000 from Britain and Canada. And there were some other 
country's forces involved as well. More than two million Allied soldiers, sailors, pilots, medics, and others from a dozen countries were involved in the overall Operation Overlord. That was the battle to essentially return France uh, away from Nazi Germany. They were they were control in control of France were the Nazis at that time when D Day started. And one of the most striking and realistic portrayals of that landing of the Normandy landings was in Saving Private Ryan. But I didn't realize, probably because of the age I was when it came out, there was a fair amount of controversy surrounding that first scene hmm. from England. Because all of the landing craft that they used in the scene were American landing craft because they were the only readily available props and vehicles they could find for yeah. the filming. Yeah. And the Brits got offended because they said that we were trying to erase their involvement because we didn't have any British landing craft in the movie. Hmm, okay. Oh, my gosh. They would notice that, of course. Oh, yeah. 73,000 Allied forces were killed in the ensuing Battle of Normandy and 153,000 wounded. Wow. The Allied bombings of French villages and cities killed around 20,000 French civilians to try to flush out the Germans. We really don't know the exact number of German casualties. They weren't recording that accurately, nor were they sharing the truth on that for obvious reasons. But we're stepping aside for a break right here. It's top of the hour. That means Fox News, Super Talk News. We're coming right back. Robert Carter, event director of the Mississippi Gulf Coast Billfish Classic at 1137. And now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour two of Middays, live from the Element Wealth Studios. We appreciate you joining us today. The C Spire text line, 601-879-4395. Going to be back in here again tomorrow, and then I'll be headed down to Point Clear, Alabama. Looking forward to that. Going to speak to the Mississippi Hospital Association at their annual convention at breakfast on Thursday. I hope folks uh, are ready for a, a dose of it early in the morning. I've been asked to talk about politics, and there's a whole bunch to talk about there. It is quite active. We've got national elections, statewide elections, lots of public policy being debated. Looks like the Republican field of presidential candidates will expand this week. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie entering the fray along with former Vice President Mike Pence. It does appear that New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu is out. He says he ain't going to run. There's no use that Trump has really just got a commanding lead over all the other candidates doesn't see a path 
to victory. I'm watching the business news here in the studio, and they are presently interviewing another presidential candidate. That would be Vivek Ramaswamy. He's been in a bit of a fight with uh, Twitter community notes the last few days. I saw that. Tell us about that. So he made a statement saying that Ron DeSantis signed a hate speech bill, <laughs> and he he didn't quite characterize it truthfully, it seems. Yeah. So the community notes called him out and said, no, that's not really how it's working. Here's Here's what's happening. Here's the reality of it. So then he fired back with, ah, Elon Musk and Twitter are just trying to silence me. And I'm paraphrasing and, and shortening, but basically it w- went back and forth. And it all boils down to, no, it seems like he really either didn't understand or was kind of fibbing about his understanding of the law. Hmm. Well, it's that time when they start ganging up on each other, right? Hurling, oh, yeah. Hurling the... Uh the mud, as they say, he did, did Mr. Vivek Ramaswamy, he he posted this a couple of days ago, in all caps, the word truth, and beneath it, he says, number one, God is real, number two, there are two genders, number three, human flourishing requires fossil fuels, number four, reverse racism is racism, number five, An open border is no border. Number six, parents determine the education of their children. Number seven, the nuclear family is the greatest form of governance known to mankind. Number eight, capitalism lifts people up from poverty. There are three branches of the U.S. government, not four, referring to the deep state complex of bureaucracies that are running the dang country. And number 10, the U.S. Constitution is the strongest guarantor of freedoms in history. You know what I like about this list? It's just common sense. Anybody can understand this. This is not like getting into the weeds of complex policy. It's not a bunch of abstract, high-level, platitude-type rhetoric. It's just common sense. How could you not agree with that? You know there are people that don't, of course. There, there will people who will take offense, take exception, argue with each one of those ten points. Especially on social media. <laughs> of course. I always go back to the whole joke about, I like pancakes. Oh, you must hate waffles. <laughs> That's the kind of reaction you get every <laughs> single exactly, day on social media. That is exactly right. That's precisely right. Let's see. Sam from Mount Hermon says, Good morning, Gerarded Rhino. As an A mechanic, I have a sneaking suspicion that the cause of the citation, that was the Cessna Citation jet crash in Virginia that happened uh, yesterday, right, was due to carbon monoxide leaking into the pressurized cabin. Two days ago now. Two days right now. So, have there been any further details released at this point? We don't really know. This is the situation on Sunday where F-16 jets were scrambled because it looked like they were about to encroach on restricted airspace. Yeah, the only other report I've seen is that it appears the plane was on autopilot and the passengers were already unconscious, and that's why there was no return on the radio. Right. And 
by the time the F-16s were scrambled and got to that position, it had already crashed. Hmm. Now, of course, the tinfoil hat theory people are always, did they shoot down an American plane over American soil? Oh, geez. Was that the explosions people were hearing? Well, Well, the scrambling of the jets, given the scenario, was in accordance with policy. That's the right thing to do. You don't know. You can't take any chances on that sort of stuff. And that's why those rules exist. But that that does make sense, Sam, especially, Rhino, when you said that it was determined that the passengers were unconscious. Obviously, the pilot was not responding to radio communication. All of that does sort of point to that being the situation where maybe the cabin was filled with carbon monoxide causing the humans to pass out. Um, in flight, no doubt. Also, Sam says, I think one of the best moments during the D-Day invasion that most people don't remember was the U.S. battleship Nevada that survived Pearl Harbor to take part in the landings, in the invasion. Yes, good point, Sam. Appreciate that. Stephen Turner says, I love waffles. I do hate pancakes. (laughs) I like them both, I'll have to admit. I, I prefer waffles over pancakes. You do? They, they tend to hold the syrup on top better because you have the little individual syrup traps. That's true. You do. And I do love my maple syrup. You like Waffle House waffles? Oh, yeah. They're good, aren't they? I went there not so long ago. No waffles at the Waffle House. The waffle machine was down. It couldn't make waffles. <laughs> that happens. Carolyn Starkville says, enemy works on control, not common sense. Sure seems like it. They don't want to hear common sense. And we just read Mr. Ramaswamy's list of truths, as he describes them. I totally agree. I'm watching Corrine Jean-Pierre. This is video from yesterday. The New York Times, you see this, Rhino, wrote a, a piece about Joe and his his age. And it was honestly kind of slobbering, I think. Is slobbering a, all over him. Is a way to put it. It was sort of a slobbering piece. And I'm kind of embarrassed for the times, the way they described the president. Uh, I'll look it up here in a minute. But some of the things they said about him were just Ignoring reality, uh, in my view, but and that's what they—that's what they—the uh, name of the the title of the article was the reality of being a president. I'm paraphrasing a bit here. Inside the complicated reality that's of being it. America's oldest president. Oh yeah, complicated reality. Well, see, it shouldn't be comp- a complicated reality. It just should be someone who's competent and capable and possesses all the necessary wits and skills and faculties to be the president. It shouldn't be like, well, let me explain it. And that's what they attempt to do here. You're seeing some of the crazy excerpts in there, right? Amazing stamina and strength and all that sort of stuff. And and again, that's what happens when you get to be 80. It's, it's not really a knock on the president. And I know some people listening are saying, well, Gerard's just attacking the president. No, honestly, I'm attacking the party for putting him in this position. That's really where this came from. They knew it. He wasn't really capable of competently serving. They knew that 
it would be a gaffe fest. There should at least be a portion of that shame shared with the voters that voted this guy into the Oval Office. I agree. I totally agree. He couldn't spend more than five minutes out of his basement, but you want him to be the most powerful man in the world? They have to schedule his entire day in a four-hour time slot during the week and then just leave him alone on the weekend so he has enough energy to do his job? Yeah, there should be a portion of shame put on the voters that voted for this guy. And what you just said there was discussed in the article. I mean, that was determined to be true in discussions with his staff. Noon to four, every day. That's the only time he's cogent enough to do any work. And off-limits on the weekends. That's what it said. Oh, yeah. And that's not something they're just speculating. They talked to Biden's staff and printed that in the article. It, it is disturbing. You better be ready to work 724-365 if you're going to be the president. I'm sorry. There's a lot of folks out there, I can assure you, that are running businesses. That's what their schedule is. They don't get to say, I'll get to that later. Leave me alone on the weekend. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. Stay with us. And now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Now, on to the real part. Dynamite! On Super Talk Mississippi. Wow. Former Representative Dennis Kucinich. Remember him from Ohio? Is it Dennis? I think so. It's been a while since he's been on there. Yeah, that's it. Former Ohio congressman. He's pretty much a hardcore socialist. He's on the channel right now talking about RFK Jr.'s campaign. Wait, is he the campaign manager? Kucinich? Uh, yeah, looks like it. Oh, well, that does it right there. RFK Jr.'s out. This guy's a left-wing nut, Kucinich. I remember him back in the Obama era. I had no idea, because there's a lot of people, you've seen it, that are kind of slobbering over RFK, even on the right. Oh, he makes a lot of sense, because he's a big anti-vaccine guy. But I've said from the day he announced, Rhino, you remember... RFK Jr., from an economic policy perspective, is hardcore left-wing. Just like Tulsi Gabbard. Everybody fawns all over her as well. And from a from a foreign policy perspective, and to a great extent from uh, a perspective of the, the overarching intrusion of government into life, I'm with her. But when it comes to economic policy... She ain't no better than Bernie Sanders. In fact, she aligns with him. And so does RFK Jr. They're big-time Medicare for all people, free housing, free this, free that, and tax the hell out of the successful in society. They better take a look. But you notice you haven't talked a lot about that. you got to dig a little bit. you got to dig a little bit. 
And this is what I think Republicans need to be concerned about. Trump pretty much attacks DeSantis. DeSantis attacks Disney (laughs) and woke culture. And all Biden talks about is the economy. He doesn't know what he's talking about, and he's wrong. I don't support his policies. But they're getting a cue from the polls which say, by far, that's the top issue. Republicans better lay out their economic plan, their vision. Have you seen that from DeSantis yet? I haven't. I haven't. Now, it's true that both he and Trump have suggested that we need to unleash America's energy sector. I'm with them. I totally agree. And and the Republican-controlled House of Representatives has prioritized that issue as the top one, but it's got no chance. That's when they created a bill to really boost energy production in this country by tearing down a lot of the crazy overarching regulation. They call it H.R. 1, and when they assigned a number one to a measure, that means it is their top priority. Now, consider the contrast in the parties and their priorities and agenda. Remember what H.R. 1 was under Nancy Pelosi's speakership? Federal takeover of voting. Because we can be in power forever if we can get this thing through. No more voting ID, mail-in ballots in every single state, required ballot harvesting, early voting, everything you can imagine to allow the Democrats to ensure that they win every election, that was their priority. So I tip my hat to the Republicans who at least made unleashing America's energy industry their top priority. Unfortunately, it's got no chance in the Senate, and the president wouldn't sign off on such legislation. But I'm sort of surprised to see that Dennis Kucinich, like a phoenix rising from the ashes, is the campaign manager for RFK. I just sit back and smile and watch RFK Jr.'s numbers keep going up while the Democrat Party is standing strong. No debates. Yeah. Even though there's a guy polling at 20%, no debates. Yeah, and Marianne Williamson's like, what, 4 or 5%. Nobody even knows who she is, but she's polling at 5%. Yeah, I agree. No debates. They're not going to do it. And you're starting to see more concerns from the Democrats about their de facto nominee being Joe Biden. And you've seen some leakage from the White House that the backup plan is Kamala Harris. You seen that recently? God help us. That's all I can say about that. She would get, to quote Barack Obama, shellacked, I think, no matter who the Republican candidate would be. So it's uh, very interesting times. So Nick in Oxford informs he has 5,000 hours in Cessna Citation. Those are small and mid-sized jets. That's impressive. Nick, sounds like decompression event to folks I've spoken with. Okay, so 
that means that the uh, that the air systems, the oxygen systems, are no longer working. And above ten thousand feet, you got to have that. I believe that is in accordance with FAA rules. Not only that, you can't breathe too long, for too long above ten thousand feet because there is a lack of oxygen at that altitude. There it's should called be the death zone on Mount Everest. Okay, I didn't when know that. When you get above 8,000 meters or yeah. 10,000 feet. Oh, you start getting dizzy. Oh, I mean, yeah. at 5,000, you get dizzy. I've been in Colorado and experienced that before. But So you can imagine what it's like double that. Uh, that should be plenty of time to don a mask, but various physiological conditions affect that. Citations should have dropped passenger masks automatically at cabin pressure. Uh, altitude of 13,500, but that can be turned off. Wow. Incidentally, from the cockpit. I didn't know that, Dick. That's interesting. Incredible. Yes, Scott and Stewart reminds of uh, professional golfer Payne Stewart. Same deal happened. Same exact thing happened where they lost pressure at very high altitude and the plane crashed with Payne on board. Why not vote for RFK Jr. in the primary on the ceasefire text line? Well, at the rate it's going, that might be the case. I would say this, though. Don't you feel like every time the president physically stumbles, falls, and has some sort of event like that, incident like that, that that may hurt him? Hurt his chances, I should say. Hurt him physically, but hurt his hurt his chances that it, people are saying, I don't know about this guy. Because think about it. We've got another year and a half plus left till we get to that point. And I mean, look at how damaging it was to Hillary's chances when she had that medical incident where her handlers had to manhandle her into the van. Yeah, she was campaigning some, somewhere, wasn't she? Like downtown in the city. I remember seeing that. And they, right. They had to... Whisk her away. Absolutely. you got to believe that. Um, in the meantime, there doesn't seem to be any effect on Trump's polling numbers when the other candidates attack him. And there's more talk about possible, you've seen this indictment this week, for the Mar-a-Lago document, classified document situation. I think all that does is help him. It just seems like people get uh, stronger committed to him and more entrenched in their support. Interesting. That would mean you would have to assume that the average Democrat has the capacity for abstract thought. Well, that's Tom and Carthage. Well, I I give them. (laughs) I think they do, Tom. uh, I hear what you're saying, man, but I think they do. Will from Kosciuszko asks, kind of a random question, but a very pertinent one. How do we stop brain drain in Mississippi? A lot of people are talking about that. State Auditor Shad White has written, spoken about it. We have here as well on the program. Got to have a place for them to work. Got to make it worth their while. Got to be a place that folks want to our young talent especially especially those that attend our fantastic colleges and universities. They, They need a place to hang their hat and go to work. So it's a chicken and egg sort of deal. We need industry in the state that hires that sort of talent, those sorts of skills. That's got to come first. 
I can honestly say the governor gets that, and he's working hard on that, and we should all work hard on that. And there are economic development resources in the state that are as well. I actually had dinner with a last night with a prospective uh, e- uh, economic development project with the management of, uh, of a company, management team that is looking to make a huge investment in the state of Mississippi. And I'll talk more about that later on in the program to the extent we can. We're coming right back with Robert Carter, event director for the Mississippi Gulf Coast Bill Fish Classic. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's Midday Super Talk Mississippi. Joining us now, Robert Carter, event director of the Mississippi Gulf Coast Bill Fish Classic. Tell us about it, Robert. You got the tournament getting underway soon here, huh? We got a big week ahead of us. This is our largest event of the year. Um, The marina's already filling up. We've got a little over 90 teams pre-registered. So, I mean, they're literally looking at about a $2 million payout at this rate. $2 $2 million payout. That is impressive. And so from where did the team... That's teams... cash. That's not cash and prizes. That's cash. That's amazing. So f- from where did the teams come? They're coming from Texas all the way down to South Florida. We had, you know, There's been a couple teams that were down in the Bahamas fishing tournaments that ran straight over. Um, you know, but this is, a, you know, this is a big spectacle. We're going to be on CBS Sports live coverage Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. CBS Sports covering. That is incredible. I I spoke to the governor yesterday. I think he's going to be there, is what I heard. Planning on. uh, He'll be here tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. So, how long has this event been held, Robert? We're going in our 27th year. Wow. That's incredible. All right. Family run. We've got the same core group of people from day one. Okay. So, for those who aren't familiar with the the species what is a billfish exactly so we've got you know for the tournament the targeted species we've got blue marlin tuna dolphin wahoo the blue marlin that's the highlight of the event the biggest one wins the tournament and that's what everyone's going for friday and saturday if you're going to you want to see a big marlin wave those are going to be your days Wow. But they, they're going to weigh anywhere from 500 to 1,000 pounds. Wow. So, obviously, you've got to have, I assume, special vessels, special equipment, and so forth uh, to fish for these large creatures. Well, if you go down to the marina right now, you look around, everyone and their grandma's got a big fancy Viking. <laughs> you know, the, the vessels are ranging, you know, anywhere from 40 foot to 95 feet in length. And you look at price tags, you know, just on the, the, the bottom tier is, you know, close to a million dollars. And some of these vessels are, you know, get up to about $15 million. Wow. 
So how does one perfect this art? How do you practice and perfect this? Just fish for these kinds of fish a lot? Spend a ton of money. <laughs> <laughs> like everything like this. Oh, it's man. fun. I mean, that's what, I mean, it's not a cheap sport. Yeah. Um, you know, these guys do it year-round. You know, some of the guys, when it's the off-season in the Gulf, they'll take their team down to, um, you know, Costa Rica, Guatemala, to some of these lodges, and they'll practice fish. You know, just getting the team dialed in, and then when it's, you know, the Gulf season, they're ready to roll. Yeah. Some of these guys are doing, you know, anywhere from five to, you know, ten events throughout the season. So do you have to have a crew? Do you do this on your own? How does this work? This a team. You got to have a solid crew. Okay. Um, you know the anglers can vary, um, but when it comes to the guys that are really competing, you know, event after event, you got the same captain and mate. You know that are running running the cockpit, just keeping everything in sync. But you also notice that the anglers, you know, they can vary from event to event. But a lot of these guys, you know, it's the, the diehards. You see the same crew over again. Yeah. So how has the equipment evolved with technology through the years? How is it different, say, today than perhaps it was 10 years ago? We've got sonar. You know, these marlin can be spotted, tracked, you know, fed and followed. (laughs) The game has changed. But that doesn't mean the weekend warrior can't go out and take them down. Yeah. Because it happens every year um, with events that we do where teams that don't have a uh oh. Nope. Can you hear me? We got you. Yep. yep. You have teams that don't have all the fancy equipment. You know, they got their, their buddies together. They've got a, you know, center console. They can get them out there in the fish waters and it just takes the right one to run across. Yeah. So what's the, uh, what's the process? Uh, does, uh, does everybody go out at the same time or they have signed different areas or do they pick an area they want to fish? So How does that work? Thursday morning, uh, we're going to have, um, we're gonna have, we're gonna, the boat's going to file out in a single file line. They're going to go down Casino Row. Okay. You're looking at you know, at 11 a.m. They're going to take off, and they're going to everyone's going to be congregated right outside Point Cadet Marina, and they're going to go down Casino Row to the west, and they're going to shoot off to the east. And it's I mean it is awesome. You like it? The, all of Point Cadet just empties out. And these teams race each other offshore. So where's Point Cadet exactly uh, as it relates to Gulf Right behind Gold the Biloxi. Golden Nugget. Okay, the, the Golden Nugget. Golden Nugget, Biloxi. Gotcha. Now, you talk about as far as boundaries. Well, no, so just, just kind of. 300 miles one direction. Okay, gotcha. They go everywhere. Gotcha. And so how far out in the Gulf do they have to go to find these billfish? Uh, it's a minimum running anywhere from 60 to 80 miles. Um, you know, I say hundreds a good average. You know, they're going to go south of Louisiana. Some will venture towards Texas. You know, those are your longer runs. But I, I'd say anywhere from 100 to 300 miles, you know, that's in one direction. And then you're wow. looking at around 1,000 miles round trip because they're leaving on a Thursday morning. They don't have to be back in until Saturday afternoon, so they're going to cover some ground. Wow, that's incredible, man! That, I mean, they're loading uh, it with fuel bladders. Yeah, you see, some of these guys are tacking on. They got two thousand gallons of fuel. Golly! So do the math on diesel. I get it. So, uh, it, can you tell in advance whether or not 
uh, the the waters are replete with these fish, or does it vary from year to year? Uh, like I said, is there something that indicates in advance? Yeah, you're going to have pretty good pretty good luck. <laughs> you really, it's what it is. You you think you know, and then it changes. Yeah. Um, and then when it happens, everyone's got an explanation for it. <laughs> uh, you just <laughs> just go out there, good luck, and we'll see what you bring back to the dock. Is this, Robert, is this a, one of those those competitions where it's sort of fierce between the angler competitors, or are they sort of friendly and kind of help each other out? Because there's a lot of money involved here. There's a, um, It's friendly. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of egos walking up and down the docks. <laughs> You've got teams that are very established. And you got a lot of guys with targets on their heads that just, you know, people just want to be. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, like when you go down to the marina right now, all of these guys are hanging out. You know, they're they're getting geared up. They're communicating. They do help each other to, to some aspect. But once they're gone, you know, they're not telling the, their tactics. Yeah. And so, uh, what's the what's the weighing process looks like, look like? Are there officials that are responsible for that? And there's protocol associated with how that works. We've got a staff. As these guys come in, they've got to be in by certain certain channel markers to the east and west yeah. of the marina. We've got spotters. As they're coming in, they're calling, they're checking in, unless we're giving them like a batting order um, by which they can weigh. And with all, just all congregate right outside the marina. And when it's their turn, you know, they'll we'll call them over the radio. They back in. The crowd's watching. Everything's being filmed. And you know, it's it's really it's really something. But we've been doing this for so long. It's a very smooth process. Staff comes in. Everyone's dialed in and knows what to do. So it's a very cohesive atmosphere. Wow, that's that's pretty cool. Um, so I assume this has got to have a huge economic impact on the Gulf Coast overall. You got a lot of folks coming in. There's a boat I just gave you for an example. There, you know, a boat that has two thousand gallons of fuel. Multiply that by at least at least eighty boats are going to have that much fuel. And you know, the price of diesel. There you go. So they're yeah. consuming all the fuel just to participate in the tournament. Then you've got the lodging. They're putting the teams in hotel rooms throughout the, you know, not just the Nugget. They're staying at the Bar Ravage. They're staying at the Palace. Uh, You know, the restaurants, too. They get here. They eat at all of our local restaurants. Groceries. Talk about a grocery bill in every one of them. (laughs) Rouse's, Winn-Dixie, they're stockpiling. Yep. You've also got a golf outing, right? Some live entertainment. We sure do. Wednesday morning. Um, for all of our sponsors and friends, um, you know, that want to participate, we invite, we go out to Shell Landing. We do a complimentary golf outing for our guests, um, in the early morning. And then, you know, we've also got a little function on Thursday after all the boats leave. We do a pub crawl through downtown Ocean Springs. We all congregate at a restaurant and then everyone gets together and we disperse throughout the town. Wow. That's really cool. It sounds like just a fantastic event. You got CBS providing coverage. We'll be broadcasting some of the event. And so just cast Mississippi, I think, in a positive light. And sounds like a good time will be had by all. Right. Absolutely. Appreciate you joining us. Robert Carter, event director, Mississippi Gulf Coast Bill Fish Classic. Thanks a lot, Robert. You have a good day. You too. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. Stay with us. Train, train. 
Middays with Gerard Gibbert. We'll do it live on Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well Studios. 601-879-4395. That's the C Spire text line. What's the payout for the winner, asks Tyler and Foxworth. What would you say, Rhino? You looked it up. Talk well, about the I mean, fish. It's all dependent on how many teams participate and in each event, but looking at some of the past payouts, for example, in 2021, the winner of the heaviest blue marlin, coming in at 793 pounds, walked away with $101,000. Wow. And you have several different divisions with different payouts, ranging anywhere from $3,000 for third place and the $500 crew division for heaviest fish. <laughs> but in in this instance, in 2021, the team It Just Takes Time walked away with over $418,000 in prize money. Wow. That's pretty dang good for fishing and having fun while you're doing it. That's pretty cool. Sam from Mount Hermon says, Gerard, between you and I, why would any PIC, that's pilot in command, that would be the the um, pilot sitting in the left seat is considered the pilot in command and is in charge of the aircraft and everything related to it. Why would they turn off the automatic emergency oxygen system in any pressurized aircraft? I Honestly, I don't know. Maybe Nick in Oxford, who has 5,000 hours on a Cessna Citation, which, of course, is a pressurized aircraft, could answer that question for us. I honestly, Sam, wasn't aware that such an option was available. That does seem a little unusual, and, and maybe it's because... Something could malfunction with the pressurized system, and it could it could put the airplane in peril, and you'd have to fly to an altitude where you didn't need uh, pressure in the cabin, oxygen in the cabin. But you turn it off uh, to avoid some other bad thing from happening. So well, correct me if I'm wrong. Usually, when you lose pressurization at a high altitude, you begin suffering from hypoxia. Correct? You do, and of course, and one of the first symptoms of hypoxia is confusion you lose your your wits no no doubt confusion um restlessness just dizziness you can't breathe it ain't a good thing same thing you can experience when you're diving that that that's where it happens probably more so honestly than it does in, in an aircraft uh I think the color of your skin can change or something like that you just yeah you turn blue okay well, you you got to have oxygen. And uh, I think somebody said earlier, you know, that the military is is trained on dealing with hypoxia. I think that's absolutely true. And I, I think you have to be tested to show that you're able to, in order to be a military aircraft pilot, that you can deal with a certain amount of loss of oxygen, hypoxia, and still do certain things and have to pass through that gate to be certified. Was it the right stuff, I believe? That's, I told you, I think it's one of my favorite movies. There's a scene in there where they're testing the pilots for for possibly being an astronaut. And 
They're, they go through just a series of physical tests. One of those does include functioning in a, a weightless environment, obviously, and then also functioning with uh, uh, under hypoxia with limited oxygen, whether or not you can just still function somewhat, certain motor skills and mental skills as well. Yeah, Kelso and Ocean Springs says you stop seeing color, too. That's a bad deal. You don't want that. And uh, seeing color flying an airplane is pretty important. It's important, period. It's important driving a vehicle as well, but it's definitely important flying an airplane. Jerry in Waynesboro says it's 6000 bucks per boat to enter the yeah, building. Yeah, that's why it matters how many teams are competing sure. and stuff like that as to how much the prize pool is. Sure, absolutely. Uh, the the more they the more entrance they get, the more money is collected from the entry fee. The bigger is the purse, absolutely. And going back to the the winnings, I scrolled down to the team that took home the least in twenty twenty one because that's the one I was looking at. They took home forty eight hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah. So that's a pretty cool deal, and it's a, a great event for our Mississippi Gulf Coast. I didn't know they had to go out a hundred miles to find those big old fish, though, huh? I mean, that's it a is lot. deep sea fishing. Yeah, that's right. It is. I've got an old fraternity brother. I should say, oh, he's my age, but <laughs> old as in it was a long time since we were in the fraternity together. And he operates uh, a charter. Shout out to him. I think he listens a bit. He's in Long Beach. Eddie Alexander is his name, Eddie. And he posts in social media all the time about going out on the boat and with his customers and Taking home the big fish. Pretty cool. Chris from Oxford uh, commented on uh, the the last election and the upcoming presidential election. We'll get to that when we come back. He makes some interesting observations, and we'll talk about that and a whole lot more. we got an hour left here on Middays. The afternoon portion is up after Fox News and Super Talk News. It's noon in Mississippi. We're coming right back. To the show that challenges you to think deeply, to think deeply and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well Studios. It is midday. Super Talk Mississippi. Gerard and Rhino with you. So, we did receive a text from my good friend, Representative Fred Shanks, out there in Rankin County. He informs that his grandfather, Fred Shanks, was part of the D-Day invasion, captain in the famous Yankee division. How about that? Appreciate you letting us know about that, Representative Shanks, and thanks to your grandfather for his service to our country and so many. Good grief. You know, you think about today, we 
concern ourselves with white rage and pronouns in the military. And then you reflect on the horrors that those brave men encountered in that invasion. It just seems so silly, honestly. Like, seriously? That ain't a problem. Have we not just made a lot of stuff that's really not a problem into a problem? Like pronouns? Mountains out of molehills. Incredible. So we shared a couple of days ago, maybe it was yesterday, about the city of Dallas, city council, now has a whole pronoun usage guide, and if you misgender somebody, you could be terminated. Misgendering somebody. Heck, who can keep up? And now we learn that the University of Oxford, they announced last Thursday that violating the university's new transgender harassment policy, including the use of the wrong pronouns, could lead to expulsion. They released a trans-inclusion statement. So, I honestly think, Rhino, that right now, this focus is on this trans phenomenon in society. A year or two from now, it'll be something else. We are in this mode where we're continuously trying to accommodate Every little special interest. It ain't possible. It's just not. Well, if the slippery slope continues, you can flip a coin. It's either going to be what they call maps, minor attracted persons, yeah, or zoophilic, a.k.a. bestiality. What's it called? Zoophilic. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Those are the two that they try to... Sneak into the alphabet soup when it gets announced anytime. Oh, my gosh. So I'm looking at Regents Park College, University of Oxford, the trans-inclusion statement. How do we get to a point where we have a trans-inclusion statement? That on itself seems ludicrous to me. And I'm cool. If they want to go mutilate their bodies and think they're changing their gender and and. Obviously, they should be allowed to go to school, pay their tuition, sit in the classroom, enjoy all the benefits of any student. But to come out with this special inclusion policy, that sounds to me like preferential treatment. It's what from it flies the, in the face of their self-appointed victimhood and oppression. It's true. But this is what, in a very common sense way, Vivek Ramaswamy said in his 10 list of truths we read earlier, reverse racism is racism. So what what you feel like happens here is that, well, you get special accommodations if you're a trans person, but if you're not, well, I'm sorry, you're just you just get the sort of the normal the normal fare of benefits. Regents Park College, this is the statement, celebrates and values the diversity of its student groups, workforce, and visitors, and we aim to create a place for them that is welcoming and inclusive. What does that mean exactly? What does welcoming and inclusive mean? And that applies to all this equity and inclusion 
narrative. What does that mean exactly? We respect the rights and dignity of all our members, staff, and visitors and put equality, diversity, and freedom of expression at the heart of our community. We've been working with our students on the following statement. It affirms our commitment to their well-being as they are the ones who make Regents very uh, a very special place. Oh, I love how they God. throw around the word dignity. <laughs> no, what does that mean exactly? The state or quality of being worthy of honor or respect. Ah, okay. So being bat crap crazy is worthy of honor and respect? <laughs> well, speaking of, here's the statement. <laughs> Regents Park College recognizes that there can be differences between assigned sex and gender identity expression. Regents Park College will at no time discriminate between people on the grounds of gender identity or any process of gender reassignment. Where this statement refers to trans people, it has in mind people living with any of these identities. What in the hell are they talking about? (laughs) When it refers to gender identity, it covers the genders, fixed or fluid in parentheses, of those who do not who do and do not identify with the sex of their birth. Cry me a river. I mean, this is ridiculous. Because these people are so fragile mentally and emotionally that they can't really come out and say what they want to say. they got to dance around it. <laughs> they go on to say, any unlawful discriminatory behavior including transphobic harassment or bullying of by individuals or groups, will be regarded extremely seriously and could be grounds for disciplinary action, which may include expulsion or dismissal. Do you think that's really happening, though? I mean, if I come across a transgender person, I'm probably not going to just randomly harass them. I mean, I guess there's some fools that do. But you know what? They're fools that will harass you and me just because we're plain old white cisgender males. And we identify as such. Heck, we get harassed on the text line for being conservative. That's true. Oh, gosh. I, I think this is they're trying to make this to be a problem. It, like, gives them virtue purpose. Look because at me. their lives are so devoid of meaning, they got to find a cause somewhere. <laughs> I just, I don't get it. I, I just, I really don't. So, they, the college says it's not possible to have a comprehensive definition of transphobia. What? I thought the college was all about going to learn useful skills to live a productive life. Well, there's the key word, useful. None of these people are going to be useful to society. They're going to be a drag on society for their entire adult life because they're crazy. (laughs) It's sad. I mean, it really is. We're all wrapped up in this. We got a major city in this country. The city council adopts a policy, a a gender-inclusive pronoun policy that can result in termination if you don't comply with it. You, you're walking on eggshells all the time. Oh my gosh, I hope I used the right pronoun when I refer to this person. I could get fired. 
But you know what? You could probably suck at your job, and if you're a trans person or a minority or a marginalized person, you're good to go. You get promoted. You get compensated. But by God, you used the wrong pronoun. You're out of here. Off with their head. And that's how upside down it is. That's the march to mediocrity. Sick. Man. So Chris from Oxford, he still thinks that uh, he's in the camp that believes that that Trump won the election in 20, and it wasn't Biden. And, I, I, well, I appreciate that, and I, I know there are a lot of people that feel like the election was rigged, it was stolen, and all that sort of stuff. And I get it. And, and you certainly, you look at Biden today and you say, how in the wide world of sports could that guy win? But I think you got to think back. I believe you got to think back to the 2020 election cycle and how big a part the whole handling of COVID played uh, in the election. And Trump was already skating on thin ice prior to that. And I think I really do believe that his dismissal of it, at least during that time period, affected the key independent voters in the handful of counties in the five states where it matters. It's just different than the total popular vote situation. We're coming right back. 38 Special bumping us out. We're in the Element Wealth Studios. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays. That would be Cream, featuring the great Eric Clapton. Super Talk Mississippi. So, back to Chris from Oxford, who just observed it, and I agree with him here. He says, I guess I'm biased, Gerard, because everything was so good while he was president. I was making good money. Gas prices unbelievably low. Folks were spending money. Everything was thriving. That's all true, Chris, except think about that final year, 2020. That wasn't the case, unfortunately. Now, gas prices were low, but you were locked up. Much of the country was locked up, put out of work, restricted, and Things look perilous, honestly. It, we didn't know what was going to happen. It's hard to believe that we had tankers at sea loaded up with oil. They'd pay you to come get it because you couldn't sell it because nobody was moving. Airlines were grounded. Folks weren't traveling in their cars. China, big consumer of Fossil fuels shut down, essentially. So I think we have to consider the effect to which, or the effect which that had on the election. But I still feel like that 
if you look at the key voters, the independents in those handful of counties, I don't think they saw Trump's handling of that situation favorable, favorably, and seemed to forget in a hurry, you know, what it was like before that. And I totally agree. I mean, perhaps the best thing Trump did was maybe understand that America needed to promote production of fossil fuels, oil, natural gas, beneath our feet. He got that. He understood it. He wasn't attacking them, targeting them, demonizing them on a daily basis the way this president is. Who said what in the in a speech right after the State of the Union, or was it in the State of the Union, Rhino, when he said, I think we're going to need fossil fuels for at least 10 more years? Yeah, that was the State of the Union. Like, what? I mean, where, dude. So, and I've said before on the program that if you wanted to truly rein in inflation and start to see it moderate, you got to get the price of oil down. And you could do that by getting out of the way of the American oil industry, and the industry saying, we're not making any more investments in refineries. I think it was the head of Exxon that said there'll never be another American refinery built. Who's going to do that? It's a 10-year payback, return on investment. you got a government that says, we don't want to use those products 10 years from now. Nobody's going to make that investment. That would honestly be an abdication of fiduciary responsibility to shareholders. What do you mean you're spending gazillions of dollars to build a refinery to produce something that the government is trying to make go away? Um, So I, I give Trump credit for that. Now, honestly, that's another situation that's just common sense. I agree that's rare. That's a rare commodity in Washington, but it's just common sense. We can push all the ways possible, the various ways possible, including paying people to go buy electric vehicles and electric appliances and electric water heaters and new panels and solar panels and new electrical panels, solar panels, all that stuff, and still I've not seen any data. Still waiting for that to show us just how much of those credits available have been used. See, no data. Remember, the deal was you were supposed to go to the local retailer and say, I want to buy a new electric appliance. And if you qualified based on your income, you were supposed to be presented with federal credits, discounts, if you will, off the price, at the point of purchase. You remember, Rhino, we read it from the bill. That was the plan. Is that happening? I haven't heard a person say that. Who's out there spending twenty grand on solar panels simply because a third of them, a third of the cost is covered by the Inflation Reduction Act? Is, so is this being adopted? It's one thing to pass a law. It's another when you put these credits, make these credits available to promote and and to experience adoption. I don't see that happening. Maybe it is, and we just don't hear about it. But it seems like that the supporters, such as the president of, of this law and all those various credits, would be out boasting 
on how Americans were leveraging those credits as they are available to them. I don't hear it. I don't see it. But the economy was struggling um, and was in a very dire place during the COVID 2020 era when everything was locked down. But the government was dropping money out of helicopters. The uh, moratorium was placed on repayment of student loans, for example, and there were stimulus checks sent out, and nobody could get kicked off of Medicaid, and lenders were instructed to defer any sorts of foreclosures and just rent controls, or just a myriad of uh, moves from an economic perspective, all signed into law by Donald Trump. 2020, March 2020, in the CARES Act, just a range of provisions, all under the the pretense of needing to keep everybody home. What was it called? Flatten the curve. Two weeks. Two to weeks. Flatten the curve. Yeah. Still paying for that. Those actions. I. I sure would like to see Republican candidates, once again, get back to focusing on economic issues. Where do they stand, for example, on the Trump tax cuts, which expire in the next term, the next presidential term, 2025? That's it. You've got three years left, three tax years left, to enjoy the benefits of the Trump tax cuts. They go away. At the end of 2025. Has anybody said a word about that? Not that I can recall, except the Democrats who say, yep, we got to let those things expire. Because they just help Trump's rich friends, that's what they tell you. Then they blew a hole in the budget, $2 trillion. No, it's 1.5. It's over 10 years, and it never happened. Revenues are up. But nobody will point that out. They're not saying anything about that. The only thing I've heard, I'll give it to Trump in his CNN town hall. He was asked, what would you do if you were president from an economic policy perspective? And his response was, drill, baby, drill. That ain't hard to figure out. That's what's needed. But they won't talk about it, unfortunately. Thank God I'm retired on the ceasefire text line. That's from someone who says, you know what, with respect to this pronoun stuff, I'd be in trouble. I'm going to call it what it is. I hear you. I think a lot of people fit into that category. Because you're being asked to ignore what your eyes tell you. That's right. It's just, it's... You see a dude with a full beard and an Adam's apple wearing a dress and your eyes go, dude. Yeah. And then they get offended and ma'am... (laughs) <laughs> That's right. That's crazy. Somebody on the ceasefire text line who wishes to remain anonymous, and of course we always respect that, says, I got caught on the carpet for misgendering an upper-level manager. I start my DEI training next week. God bless you. It's crazy. It has absolutely invaded every corner of society. 
Could these people put a brand on their foreheads so we will know what to call them? Not a bad idea. Mike and well, that's, Simpson. That's half the problem is you have to call them by their preferred pronoun, but that changes by the hour, that's and your true. only indication is some fruity, colorful bracelet or a set of <laughs> earrings that say they, them, or something stupid like that. Like, there's no way you're going to know at first glance. So you've misgendered them probably accidentally, and you're still going to face the consequences because they're emotionally unstable. But you could get fired for that. Unbelievable. Exclusion of the majority in the name of inclusion, says Mike in Simpson County. Quite true. I guess I can identify as a 12-year-old girl and play on my daughter's softball team, says Matt in New Sight, Mississippi. There's a big case in Connecticut for some uh, track athletes in high school that had to compete against dudes and got beat. I think that's going to federal court, maybe the Supreme Court. We're coming right back, half an hour left on middays in the Element Well Studios. This program. Gerard Gibbert. Here we go. This is huge, huge, huge news. Huge, huge, huge news. Huge. You need to listen to this. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk, Mississippi. Day after day, bumping us into this segment here on Middays, recorded on the Apple label, discovered by the Beatles. Tragic story of the the group. Uh, Straight Up, the name of that album, 1971, too, something like that. Really good. Very talented lads they were. On the ceasefire text line... As the economy worsens, says Thomas in Greenwood, maybe we need to start identifying as trans so we can avoid being laid off. I'm sure a company would rather lay off a regular employee versus a trans employee, and the possibility of discrimination lawsuits. Are there any requirements, or do you just get to declare you are to enjoy the benefits of being a protected class? Yeah, that's a interesting thought there, Thomas, and... As an employer, it's something anytime you had to make a call like that. Thankfully, in my 33-year career as an employer, very, very rare. The key is hire good people where you don't run into that situation or compelled to have to make those hard choices. And we were fortunate that we were able to do so. But, yeah, you would always have to think about that. And it doesn't have to necessarily be a so-called protected class. It's pretty easy to draw up a lawsuit. doesn't cost a whole lot to go sue an employer on wrongful termination, and you're pretty much going to have to pay your way out of it when that happens. Um, whether you go to court or not, whether you do anything wrong or not, that's the flaw, I think, in our legal system. you got to pay your way out of it, and that's because there are a lot of lawyers out there, unfortunately, that will take on these cases. I dealt with a couple. And they're a little shocked when they find out the other side of the story. I was always shocked that 
You mean you didn't bother to maybe do a little research on the other side of the story before you agreed to take this case on and represent the plaintiff here? But you end up settling every single day. That goes on. Typically, the insurer covering such cases will recommend that just to get rid of it, take care of it at that point. But it is an interesting thought. K-Dog and Wiggins says, what's wrong with he, she, or it? Man, I don't know. I guess we'd have to ask those who... It's not edgy enough. Okay. I've got to be G. <laughs> the craziness we found in the... Uh, was it Johns Hopkins, right, that published the pronoun guide? Uh, there was words in there I never heard of. Like 50 different pronouns. 50. A-E-R, something like that, and had examples. We read them on the air. It's like, you got to be kidding me. It's like you have to relearn the language. Golly, it's just crazy. I'm watching, by the way, a story right now that's airing on the television here on the Business Channel in the studio. New York City, you put, you see in this, installing vending machines that give out free crack pipes. Pipes. They're literally dispensing paraphernalia for drugs, for the drug users on the streets. Come one, come all. Bring your drug habit. Wonder how long it'll take before those are cleaned out and you got a crackhead sitting next to it selling them. Unbelievable. Check out the documentary What is a Woman on Twitter, says Curtis in Biloxi. That's Matt Walsh. I have. It's it's fascinating. And it's I think it all boils down to something we said here early on on the program, which is how in the world are we going to come together on complex, critical issues? We can't even agree on how many dang genders there are, sexes there are, right? So that's crazy. Somebody here said, um, yeah, so 2,000 mules and all those people that think the election was stolen have no idea what they're talking about. Well, I don't know if they have any idea what they're talking about or not, but what about all the people who don't think the election was stolen, so they don't have any idea what they're talking about? I mean, you got to at least be respectful of the fact and at least recognize that this is one of those things where there are multiple sides to the story. You can watch 2,000 mules all day long, and there are a gazillion reports that refute a lot of that. You might be it all from, comes back to the old lawyer adage. It's not what you know, it's what you can prove. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And it's been, what, three and a half years, and they've been unable to bring forward the evidence they claim to have and use it in a court of law. So you're familiar with Mike Lindell. He's the My Pillar guy, right? Who, oh, yeah. Who was... Um, pretty active in promoting the idea of the stolen election. In particular, machines, the Dominion voting machines, he said, were uh, were compromised and votes were changed and so forth. So he actually offered a $5 million award, did Lindell, to anyone who could prove that the data that he supplied a horde of data, honestly, that he said proved that that the voting information was, in fact, modified 
was amended electronically to cast votes for Joe Biden that weren't, or to add votes. And so he provided this data to the public and said, anybody that can prove it's wrong, I give them $5 million. It was a symposium that he that he had, and any attendee at the symposium, if they could disprove his theory, he said China did it, that China compromised the voting machines and the voting data and changed votes, added votes, etc. Well, a forensics expert, I wish I'd have known about this. I could have done this. I, I'm familiar with the tools that do this sort of stuff. So a forensics expert looked at it, it's 37 terabytes of irrefutable evidence, is what Mr. Lindell said, The Chinese-backed hackers broke into the systems in all 50 states and flipped votes. Well, it turns out that the data was nothing but fabricated word-processing gibberish. Wasn't real voting data. He freaking made it up. He lied. He lied. And so a forensics expert said, this is a joke. This is easy. This is just word processing data, the bit pattern level word processing data. So Lindell said, well, here's some more (laughs) to show that you're wrong. And he supplied that data. And it still had the date-time stamp on it. You're shaking your head. You've seen this. Oh, yeah. And it was after this guy came forward and said, this is, this is phony. This is bogus data. And then he handed him some more, and he said, you've got the date-time stamp in hexadecimal still <laughs> embedded in the data. You made it up. So the court ordered him, you got to pay $5 bucks." He's already going broke. Dominion's breaking him. He says he's paying out to defend himself $10 million a month because he defamed them. Unbelievable. So we're to take this guy's word for it, who makes up data, fabricates digital information to prove his point? Well, you come away scratching your head. I don't know who to believe, honestly. I guess I would ask, here's here's my concern. If we just dwell on that, we're going to get our butts beat 24. If we just dwell on, oh, well, don't worry, we got this, it was stolen last time. The, the country voters, they love Republicans. <laughs> they love Trump. He's got no problem. If we can just avoid the election being stolen, so does that basically say that Joe Biden didn't get a single vote? Why did anybody vote for him? Why does anybody vote for any of those fools? I I scratch my head at that. How did they vote for George Santos, the lying Republican in New York? That guy won. How does that happen? And when you look at Georgia, where Herschel Walker went down, which could have changed the complexion in the U.S. Senate, And there are lots of allegations, at least, that there was voting irregularities there, and there could have been. But in the same election, the Republican governor got 400,000 more votes than Walker. 
Why didn't they cheat on that one? Why don't they cheat on all of them? So they win every single race if it's that widespread and that's easy. I'm simply saying if we don't at least acknowledge that it's at least just maybe possible that Joe Biden won and we don't heed that and reflect on that and recognize that, we're going to get beat next time. We're just going to assume, oh, yeah, well, and there are a lot of people that think, why vote? Because everything's rigged. It's not going to matter. Well, that will ensure we lose as well. I'm optimistic that a Republican can win, even with all the voting craziness. But I got some thoughts on that when we come back in the Element Well Studios. Gerard Gibbert. Going beyond the headlines, breaking down the stories that matter to Mississippi. Middays with Gerard on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone it's midday super talk mississippi so mo says that six states that biden carried it's because they changed their election procedures without going through the legislative legislatures required by the u.s constitution their electoral votes should not have been counted but most i looked at that list those states were carried by trump I don't see any swing states in there. I was looking for Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, where it matters. It doesn't matter in Iowa. doesn't matter in Texas. doesn't matter in Georgia. Georgia maybe a little bit, but still I say, why does Governor Brian Kemp win handily, overwhelmingly, easily? Herschel Walker goes down. Why didn't they cheat? And, and a lot of people say, hey, Herschel Walker went down because of cheating. Why didn't they cheat? So Stacey Abrams would win, and Governor Kemp would go down. Maybe it had something to do with the candidate. Just keep thinking it's voter irregularity, and you're never going to win. We need to be figuring out why is our message not resonating. We, We live in a bubble. We think everybody thinks like we do. They don't. There are 43 million people in California, 13 times what we have in Mississippi. Overwhelmingly, they vote Democrat. Why? And there are more rich people out there that have benefited from, honestly, free market economic policies that support capitalism, that facilitate it, than anywhere else in the country, maybe in the world. Yet they still vote blue. I can't explain it. It's it's a guilt complex, the best I can come up with. Rhino's shaking his head. It's this guilt complex. Somebody asked earlier, why do all these rich people who benefit from Republican-oriented, limited government and low-tax policies, why do they all vote Democrat? I swear I think it's because they. it's a guilt complex. I can't explain it otherwise. I, I really can't. 
Um, but we can sit here and point to all this voting stuff all day long, and that's fine. And I'm not saying there weren't voting irregularities, but I, I'm not totally convinced that, oh, yeah, Donald Trump would have won without that because people just love Trump everywhere. Nobody voted for Joe Biden. I mean, was it zero? And if if it was wrong, and if there was voting irregularity, and I get this is not a popular opinion in Mississippi. What I'm sharing right now is not popular. But it's the truth in my view. It's my opinion. And I'm warning. Dwell on the past. Write it off to rigged election. Get your butt beat next time. Somebody needs to go into Michigan, into Wisconsin, into Pennsylvania, into Arizona, and make the case. Trump did that in 16 against the worst candidate in history and barely won. Barely. Before all the changes in voting that we did during the pandemic. And, Rhino, I'm not so sure. You talked about the incident with Hillary Clinton. I'm not so sure that didn't do her in. You could argue that, you know, if that hadn't happened, maybe in those handful of counties, independents would have stayed with her. It could have been that witnessing that, the way that was played over and over again, it it shook people up, I think, when they saw that. And the other thing I've said so many, many times before, Trump's appearance in rallies in those states... He was advised by Kellyanne Conway say, you got to go to Michigan, you got to go to Wisconsin, you got to go to Pennsylvania, and he did. And Hillary stayed home right before the election, the weekend before the election. And he had massive crowds, and he showed endless energy, and he got everybody fired up. And I think that's what put him over the top. Didn't happen in 20. Couldn't. It all shut down. Couldn't do that sort of stuff. And that's where Trump thrives. I think that big time benefited him in 16. Couldn't leverage that. Couldn't leverage that experience in 20. But if you just say, hey, hey, wait, no way. Maybe this is another way to look at it. What if it had been a different Democratic candidate than Joe Biden? Is it possible they could win, or is there just no way for a Democrat candidate to ever win unless they cheat? If that's the case, then what happened in the House? What happened to the landslide we were supposed to have in the House? Was that all because of cheating? What happened in the Senate? We didn't flip that either. Was that because of cheating? We just attribute every election loss to cheating. I just don't see how we're ever going to win where we need to win. That's my take on it. We'll talk about this some more tomorrow. We thank you so much for joining us today. We're out of here. Until tomorrow, stay safe and God bless everyone. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.